This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio today is Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm registered to represent a foresight fund services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Really interesting time, Professor. We've got some new highs in the market. We've got GDP data. Uh, good time to check in and see how you're thinking about the markets. Yeah. Yeah, blowout GDP. You know, I was always saying it was going to be on on the high side, and it did. It even broke that, uh, the most optimistic, you know, over 3%. Now, as those people looked into it, are warning, and it is true, a lot of that is inventory buildup, and um, uh, a lot of that will be worked off in this quarter. So, uh, actually, the forecaster that came closest to it this quarter is now below 2%, just below 2% uh, uh, for this quarter that, that hit it closest in the first quarter uh, is, is uh, just below 2%. So I don't worry. It doesn't mean we're going to continue to get 3%, but it, it certainly is a, a, a good number. Um, I'm actually, you know, quite interested in the employment number that we're going to be getting next week. And of course, we're going to be getting an awful lot of uh, earnings reports. Um, this is the biggest week for earnings report. Pretty mixed. I mean, some winners, some lo- uh, losers, some warnings on the future. Uh, again, I, I think we're going to get uh, low to mid single digit uh, earning increases uh, for the S&P this year. A big headwind uh, is certainly the dollar, which continues to soar uh, in the market. So, um, uh, you know, that that will be a, a challenge. Uh, stocks are pretty much selling at 18 times earnings, uh, which I think is a pretty good ratio for given the interest rates. Uh, certainly not too low, but also hard to get a big, um, uh, I think, a, a real strong market. I, I do think we need some resolution on the Chinese trade deal. They seem to be dragging. Uh, that is something that I certainly could uh, pump short term. Uh, energy into this market. Yeah, it's interesting. The sort of rates keep trending down. You don't really have any real big, uh, you know, steepeners. You know, the two year is somewhat basically close. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, below the the sort of short term rates. Any and the data didn't on the on the strong GDP. They're sort of looking past that today. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a, on the print, you had a little pop in those yields, and then people said, ooh, what does this mean for the future? And uh, uh, bonds strengthened and yields went down, and they're just under 250 today. Uh, you know, that, that's pretty close to inversion. Actually, the Fed funds rate, uh, you know, which is sort of set at 240, actually is, is looking at 244 right now. This has to do with technicalities about how the, the interest and reserves gets calculated. Uh, so with the 10-year at 249 and the uh, the Fed funds rate at 244, we're pretty flat in that space uh, right now. Uh, you know, again, um, uh, it's not going to happen, but, you know, there is a case for the Fed giving us more uh, breathing room on its May 1st meeting and lowering the rate. Now, if they were going to lower it, they would start talking about it and given the GDP report, even though it doesn't portend the greatest strength, it doesn't look like they're going in that direction, but nonetheless, I would feel a little better if I saw the funds rate uh, closer to two than uh, two forty-five. I've heard some commentary that uh, the administration believes that their forecast for the economy have been the most accurate, and they say last year they were pretty accurate. They say this year it's going to be three one, and they're sticking with that that forecast for the yeah. economy. Yeah, well, they, you know, White House has always. I mean, this is not just Trump. I mean, uh, White House uh, projections are always greater than the economists. They tend to look at things uh, optimistically. But yes, uh, the actual, you know, last year, Q4 over Q4, we had 3%, um, which at the beginning of 2018, there were very few economists thought were possible. Uh, now, we did get 3.2 again. It wasn't the, the composition that you would like to continue that 3% run. Um, but, you know, with a trade deal and more optimism and yeah, you know, if we can get that uh, uh, participation rate, which fell two tenths of a percent last month, back up to you know to make room for these workers, um, I wouldn't put it out of the question. Yeah. Any uh, any other final closing thoughts here? Uh, not too much. I I, I I'm giving uh, listeners here a little bit of a heads up. Um, there may be an article. Uh, running uh, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, not not finalized yet. Uh, uh, I've, I've said some words about the Fed's new um, nominee um, for the uh, Federal Reserve, Stephen Moore. So uh, you guys are the first to know about that. No one else knows except Wall Street Journal and I. <laughs> Very good. We'll keep, we'll keep uh, but it. I think, uh, you know, they told me that they're going to try to get that out on uh, Monday. I think that's going to be uh, stirring the pot a little bit here. Very good. We'll, we'll look forward to seeing it and uh, get you back next week to talk about it. Absolutely. Thanks, Professor. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Uh, when we bring on our, our first guest here, we'll be talking with Matt McAleer, who serves as Executive Vice President, Director of Equity Strategies at Cumberland Advisors. I've, I've known Cumberland for well over a decade. They've been a, a sort of client of Wisdom Tree. Uh, Matt, thank you for coming back on our program today. Sure, my pleasure. Uh, we just had uh, one of our colleagues with you down in uh, at your your financial literacy day. Uh, any as you're thinking about you know what you learned there at that conference? Any interesting takeaways from the uh, the latest GIC and, and financial literacy day conference you guys held? Well, we covered a lot of different topics, so that was interesting. We not only do we have panels on on domestic equities and domestic fixed income, but we had some different panels on on global and international markets, both equity and fixed income, and both both from a trading standpoint and investing standpoint, and their economies. And then we 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 complemented that with with some different uh, 
you know, thoughts and ideas from a philanthropic standpoint. So it, it, it was well-received. I, I thought it was a good day. Very good. Uh, now, tell us a little bit about your system and your, your method when, as we get to hear some of your views on the markets. Uh, maybe give our listeners a little bit some of the how you're grounding and thinking about the markets and, and the types of tools you use to figure out how Cumberland wants to position their equity portfolios. Sure. And, and like many firms, we, we run separate type strategies. But if we were looking at, uh, for example, our U.S. strategy, we, we primarily and in the U.S. ETF strategy uh, entirely deal with uh, capital allocation through ETFs. And the, the initial breakdown we like to start at is trying to get about 50% of the, of the capital in the strategy invested in, in, in a broad manner, uh, index-based, whether it's whether it's equal weight or cap weight, uh, growth or value, uh, small, mid, large, we make those decisions based on on some fundamental work that leans heavily on interest rates and 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 so forth, but but also on relative strength and trend within the markets, trying to see what area is showing uh, you know some outperformance and perhaps some reasonable risk reward measures. So that that's what we do with. Uh, 50% of the capital. The other 50, we try to drill down into sectors and industries. Uh, and again, it's it, it's a two-handed approach. We're trying to identify areas that are reasonable from a risk-reward standpoint, fundamentally, but also that are showing some type of relative strength versus the market. Uh, you know, the, the the market bogey of the S&P 500 has been a been a tricky bogey over the last, uh, let's call it the last decade, where it's yeah. really started to you know, put a, uh, a high percentage of outperformance versus active managers, we're starting to see that, it appears to me, at least on our end, change a little bit. Uh, you know, perhaps the fact that now, anytime you play defense, uh, by going to cash, and for example, we've, we've raised a little bit of cash here, in our U.S. portfolio, we're we're about twelve percent cash, and and we're being finally paid on that cash. You know, right for years, two and a half percent almost Fed funds. You're getting you know, some money for years. You're at fifteen, twenty bips. You know, twenty five basis points on your cash. That's a heck of a penalty. Uh, you know, for being out of the market, and and I think that showed up versus the S and P. You know, today you're you're at two percent on your cash. So so it's funny to think of 2% cash being a little bit of a tailwind, but at least when you're parking a little cash, you're getting paid on it. So it's interesting. So if you think about, we had the big volatile fourth quarter, then it's, you know, snapback rebound now on, uh, uh, it's an interesting question on where you think it's what's causing the snapback, but how, what's triggering your, uh, you know, obviously bringing some cash means you're getting a little bit more defensive. What's triggering your warning signs on, on that type of positioning? Yeah. And I, and I don't, I, I I don't want to really point to it as a, a over concern or warning, but what we do do on some of our more aggressive positions, uh, and and you know maybe maybe you think of that as uh, biotech or or semiconductors or or areas that have quite a bit of what we call coast to coast volatility. You know where you where you can get fifty percent moves. As a, as a net move from top to bottom, will tend to take a little bit off after a run. Mm-hmm. So, so I would I, I characterize it a little bit more of that. What we 
try to do, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, is, is take a little bit off the runs and, and feed it to some of the areas that have have pulled back. So, you know, we did we did feed some into healthcare, specifically metal, medical devices and uh, and the broad and and broad healthcare over the last uh, couple of weeks when they got hit off some of the political. Uh, Jawboning or, or headline risk out of the uh, out of the, some of the Democratic contenders that you know followed with followed by the president as well, talking about trying to uh, gut or rearrange the the healthcare system. Yeah, I'm looking. You just put up a year-to-date chart on the S&P 500 sectors, and you see you know the S&P up uh, almost 17 percent. Infotech leading the way. Communication services 26, 22. Consumer discretionary you get 22. Uh, but the bottom is healthcare too, and then utilities ten and staples twelve. So it is uh, it, sort of that defensive, quote unquote, defensive sector plus that political noise ha- has healthcare behind. Yeah, the, the healthcare had already been lagging, uh, you know, going into well, let's call it April first, uh, but really got. I, I think it was a let's just call it eight eight and a half percent, and at that time the S and P was up thirteen or fourteen, so it was already lagging a bit, uh, but that that headline risk that you run into politically really, really knocked down the sector going back uh, two and three weeks ago. You had biotech down uh, over 10% over a 10-day period. Mm-hmm. And you had the, the health insurers uh, really took it on the chin. You know, they, they were down. They've been down. If you, if you carve out the in health insurers from the uh, broad health care area, they're, they're down about 20, 20% year to date. That's a that's a heck of a number in a strong market. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, when when you, you you made another interesting comment on and when you talked about the strategic allocations of looking at interest rates relative to positioning, and and I know you guys do a lot of work on the bond side. So I, I'm curious on is, is both as you think about your view on well before we get to your view on interest rates, how do you think about interest rates dictating allocations? I, I've looked at some work on on uh, sort of rising rates feeding small caps over large caps. I'm curious if that's consistent with your view or if you look at it a bit differently. Yeah, we, you know, it's each cycle of the market, you know, decade after decade is a little bit different. But near term, and and we try not to look too far beyond our headlights is a a term we use uh, because you can try to make six and 12 and 18 month projections of rates and and the effect of rates and and, and you end up circling back and changing your mind twice. But currently, you know, our our, our thought is if we're going to stay, take the 10 year treasury uh, into effect, if we're going to stay in that say 240 to even 3% range, I don't think that's enough to pull money, pull demand away from equities uh, shorter term. You know, that you, you can have some economists say uh, rates will, will dictate where, where growth will be 6 and 12 and 18 months out, and that may or may not be true. What we try to think of is are rates high enough that a trader or investor says to themselves, let's take November of last year. The market's been choppy. The market's been uh, has pulled back, made a little run, caused a little, uh, a little, a few headaches for people. And in November, we got to a three and a quarter on the ten year. To us, <clears throat> at that three and a quarter point, 
we were seeing some demand on fixed income from equity investors. We were looking at a three and a quarter U.S. ten year, and we were seeing, uh, you know, four, four twenty, four twenty five municipal bonds out twenty two, twenty three years. That's a that's a very attractive alternative to stocks. So that that's one way we we try to feed in thoughts and ideas on how how rates may affect uh, uh, both markets. You know, it's it going along the old thought that money tends to go where it's treated best. If 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 we were going to stick in that three and a quarter, three fifty, three seventy five on the ten year, that I I think that could have been a, a pull away from equities and gotten us a little more defensive. Yeah, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Matt McAleer, the Executive Vice President, Director of Equity Strategies at Cumberland Advisors. Um, and we talk about his his uh, his positioning on equities and, and how rates ties to that. We, we focus a lot on the U.S. so far, Matt, and I know you guys also run some international portfolios. Any commentary on how you think about U.S. versus foreign today at a very, very high level? And then we can, we can drill into where, where what you guys like internationally. Yeah, from a broad standpoint, we we do keep an eye on the relative strength between U.S. and international, as we do run a, a one strategy is a global portfolio that will have a a ratio of of domestic equity to international equity. So we we keep it uh, a close eye there. Uh, you know, one one of the things that that continues to keep us uh, keep us alert are these. You know, I don't, it's tricky to use the term "ridiculous" in the markets because the the markets are what counts. But when you see a, a German tenure below zero, it, you, you try to come along a, a a a forward way of thinking of what kind of effect can that have in Europe? Is it a sign of Europe really in trouble, or are they, you know, a year or two? beyond their initial loosening, similar to how we were when, when the Fed started to loosen uh, post-2008 and 2009. Uh, the, the market didn't catch fire. Uh, the economy didn't catch fire right away. Uh, the markets started to move ahead of it. So you're looking at a, a, German, a German tenure at zero and the equity markets over in Europe acting a little better. Now, is it a false head fake, or are they just getting ahead of the economy finally catching up to some of this, you know, call it free money, uh, this this excess liquidity? So, for the first time in a while, we we think Europe, Europe's not as bad as it as it has been, even though if you read the economic reports, it is. We maybe it's bottoming, and that that would be a positive for global trade, you know. Uh, it's tricky for the U.S. to continue to carry the load uh, as it has over the last, really, three to five years with the weakness overseas. Hi, Matt. Thank you. Uh, this is Li Chen. Uh, very interesting. I just want to have a question. You mentioned that interest rate you know, plays into your asset allocation decisions uh, a lot. Um, what about like other things you look, particularly um, when you look at the you know, emerging market, the interest rate usually is very high. Like, How do you... Uh, you use you know some some of those uh, in this area. Sure, and and you know as, as as you mentioned, we we look at rates obviously for some of our domestic thought process, but very much uh, in in 
foreign markets as well. Uh, emerging markets really have trouble with rising U.S. rates, where they have to if they're if they're paying off debt in, in U.S. dollars. Those rising rates can be tricky for them and, and be a drag on growth. So it was interesting that uh, you know you saw the emerging markets rally ahead of developed markets late in uh, in 2018, which which was telling us that although rates had had sprung, for example, the 10-year went from 275 to three and a quarter here over just 60 days in, in late 18, that the foreign markets weren't afraid of rates going much higher. You know, the the emerging markets got a bid in November. If you look, if you take a look at some charts, well ahead of. Uh, the developed markets and well ahead of the U.S. markets. So that that gave us a little bit of confidence that although rates had been rising in the U.S., they may have been peaking. And uh, that that that's something we we use uh, a significant lever on our on our emerging market allocation, especially right now for the. I don't want to say for the first time in in, in forever, but we are overweight. EM emerging markets versus developed markets in our international strategy. So that's wandered far off the traditional benchmark uh, of say two thirds developed, one third emerging. So we'll see how that works out. Um, just to follow up, like when you look at emerging, do you have some country uh, tilts, like a particular country? You know, we in our show we've heard several guests, I think, you know, talking about China, India, or Vietnam. I just want to get your thoughts on those. Sure. What we try to do in international, and let's break it down to EM uh, emerging markets specifically, is we'll make a broad bet. On the on the emerging markets on a broad emerging markets index to get the exposure. So we don't want to like we don't want to like emerging markets, but pick the wrong countries. So we'll we'll push uh, half of our emerging market capital into the. We'll allocate that through indexes, broad indexes, and then with our other fifty percent of our capital, that's that's geared towards emerging markets. We'll make country specific bets. So we are long China. Uh, India was a position uh, following up on you mentioning India that we did like uh, and, and performed relatively well. We are not in India directly right now. We took that out of the portfolio. We'll watch and see if it pulls back a little bit further. Uh, an area, one area that uh, has performed well over the last 30 or 45 days that that we have positions in uh, is South Africa. It's an area that doesn't get doesn't get uh, focused on too much, but it's shown some very nice relative strength. So we'll 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 attack our emerging market allocation through a broad index and then country specific. It's very interesting there, Matt. I mean, it's uh, what's what's I, we had noticed a lot of the same EM outperforming to the end of last year, and that got us you know more encouraged also to think about 
you know, portfolios going overweight EM. Uh, what's what's amazing this year is how you know the China tech story. I mean, it, it's just been everything full on rebound. The Fed pause, China's flying, tech's flying. Uh, you know, some of those are up thirty percent plus on on the year um, when you know brought sort of more than double the broad index. Um, India, it's lagged a lot with the. And now, what's interesting is starting to come a little bit better with the election. You know, they have they're going through a continuous election cycle this month. We just sort of special show on the election last last uh, last week, um, and, th- and it seems to be they're thinking at Modi coming back. Um, any how, how do you do you think the the China story continues on a trade deal, or do you think the thirty percent already fully prices that in? Well, it you know it it, it has something priced in there, and that's. That's the uh, that's the battle, right? Trying to figure out how much of this move is already priced in, and isn't entirely priced in. Does does a trade deal where both both countries pat themselves on the back and you know something gets done, but just enough to tide over tide over the uh, political atmosphere for the time being? Does that just get sold? Uh, it doesn't appear that way from a from a technical standpoint. Even even these pullbacks, and you've had a slight pullback this week uh, in China directly. It it appears to be being bought, and that's probably tends to be uh, you know from from larger funds that have missed some of that move. We we weren't uh, we weren't long enough China directly ourselves. Uh, we do have a, a position in in China, obviously through our emerging markets, but also uh, directly. But it's a six percent direct position in our international. <laughs> you know, you just you just named uh, you know mentioned the performance for the year, and at six percent, we're kicking ourselves every day. Uh, it's nice to have the performance, but you know, it seems like you never have enough of the big ones and too much of the ones that are underperforming. That's the old joke in this business, as you know. Well, it's also very volatile uh, emerging market, so you never know. Um, You're right, and and that is something that we are, we, we always have to be concerned about. If you've traded the international markets and specifically emerging markets for, for any length of time, you, you know you're going to uh, run into you know, three, four, five times a decade where you wake up down 7% here domestically. Uh, and, and that's a tricky number to trade out of. That's a tricky number to overcome. So th- that's, always, that's always on the, on the platform of when we're taking direct exposure in a, in a single country where, you know, we're, we're political uh, movement, we're corruption, we're currency risk, all has to be uh, factored in. And, you know, uh, you know, as you know, there's multiple times and you can throw any kind of exposure to Russia in there, where over the course of a decade, there'll be three, four, five times, six times, where you wake up Tuesday morning and your position's down 9%. So... Yeah, um, I do want to have a question since you know I do a lot of research on factors. Like, do you uh, factor? Like, do you use some of those uh, in your asset allocation? Like, do you have any preference toward a particular factor on on the you know the part of money that you 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 have a little bit more active tilts? We do both on on the domestic side, and our, you know we do try to look at different factors. Uh, both domestically and internationally, you know, as you know, factors have been getting 
quite a bit of attention the last, let's call it three, four, five years, but factors have been around forever, whether you want it to be, you know, equal weighted or, or, or cap weighted, whether you want it to lean small versus mid versus large, uh, even, uh, you know, decades old growth versus value is a factor piece. So we're, we're always using some relative strength uh, analysis to try to see which areas of the market from a factor standpoint, not just not just from a sector and industry and index standpoint, but from a factor standpoint, do we want to be? So if we want to be industrials, we'll, we'll take a look at a, a cap-weighted ETFs versus equal-weighted ETFs and try to see where our reasonable entries are, where our outperformance perhaps can come. Are we comfortable on the cap side with the top five, six, seven holdings in that ETF? Or are there two or three of those top six that we don't like, which may push us towards equal weighting? So, you know, one one comment is we've been pleased with how equal weight has held up uh, this year versus cap weight. You know, cap weight over the last three or four years has been has dominated equal weight as the cap weighted indexes have have provided so much outperformance versus the broad broad indexes. Uh, so it's been nice to see even the equal weighted S and P five hundred perform well. Yes, and this year. I, I I cannot agree more on that. I think uh, equal weighting over long run um, is still you know considered um, at least. The, the, I agree with you on, on this uh, because in the last couple of years, it's really been a large cap, you know, momentum run. So it's nice to see equal weighting uh, coming back. Agreed. I think it's healthy for the market, right? If, yeah. if, you're, if you're seeing more breath across markets, whether it's domestic or international, uh, you, you feel that there is demand coming outside just the top 25 companies. So. Um, I do want to uh, ask a follow-up question on on uh, factors. The, you know, low vol ha- has been really in the news. Um, you know, recently. I wonder, like, what's what's your thoughts on in terms of how to look at this factor? Uh, we think it's crowded right now. We think that that's an area that that minimum vol or low vol area that we don't want to be uh, involved in from an allocation piece right now, and and. You know, really, we that that just comes into the into the thinking that it feels like that end of the boat has gotten awfully crowded. Uh, you can see from inflows over, say, the last six and twelve months that that particular factor has gotten very popular. And you know, you wonder if those uh, low low or minimum vol securities, which are normally based on a valuation of value uh, and, tr- and and don't trade with a, a real high growth rate, you wonder if that demand for those securities, those individual companies through these low vol strategies has made them rather expensive is, is the way we look at it. Expensive without generating a ton of growth. You know, you can always say that uh, the NASDAQ 100 is expensive, but but you're also getting a modicum of growth there that you're probably not seeing 
in the in the minimum vol strategies. I've got to worry about confirmation bias here because I've been doing a lot of research <laughs> and publishing on the exact same topics. So uh, it's interesting to hear these commentaries, and uh, we do a lot of work on that. I, I in some ways I think it's even more true internationally as as it is true in the U.S. Um, but uh, and it's sort of interesting how it ties into all your all the rates views uh, and sort of in some ways just the low rates and the volatility we had in the fourth quarter sort of accelerating some of those trends, but uh, a lot of interesting interesting views. Any final closing thoughts on how you're positioning or, or things about Cumberland you'd want to uh, to get across for people? Uh, you know, in, ter- in terms of positioning, the way, the way we look at the markets, we don't necessarily have to have to earn 100% of the upside. We, we tend to be a, a little bit more defensive. So when I mentioned that we're, we're you know, 12% cash in our U.S., that, that's not unusual for us to take a little bit off here and there. Uh, you know, if the market stays strong, if the mark, if the bid stays there, you continue getting higher lows without much of a pullback, that'll hurt us. Uh, but we are an active manager from the standpoint of decision-making. Uh, we're, we're a little less active in what we use, which are primarily ETFs. We, we don't we we consider those fairly passive investments, but with an active management overlay. So uh, we're, we're comfortable with that cash right now. Some of the weekly momentum numbers that we follow have gotten a little frothy going back a week ago, and and those numbers have started to come down. We've lost a little bit of momentum in the markets, and you know, all we would look for is is uh, you know a, a mild pullback to start putting cash back to work. Well, that's on a great risk management note. Thank you for joining us uh, on the show today, Matt. Sure. Appreciate Thank it. you. With, with, that okay. fi- with that final comment on raising cash, you get a little bit more defensive in risk management. It sort of teases out uh, our next section. We're going to be talking with uh, the author of a new book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Find out what that's all about on our next segment, all about risk management. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and you're listening to the Behind the Market podcast. Our show airs live every Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Channel 132. Our guest for the next half hour is Allison Schrager, an economist, co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners, journalist at Quartz, uh, but also the author of a fascinating new book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. Uh, Allison, welcome to our program today. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so we got a copy of your book. I've been powering through most of it. Um, really, what an interesting way to start a book and yeah. maybe sort of talk through how you, you sort of maybe co- came to the idea of writing this book, maybe talk through uh, you sort of all about risk management and, and uh, just sort of get what, what motivated the, the idea. Well, my background is I'm a retirement who studies retirement finance and economics of retirement. So that might not seem like the most obvious connection with sex work. But, you know, retirement, the central question is risk, which is how to make uh, your resources last throughout your lifestyle as predictably as possible. And that takes taking risk because usually we can't save enough to invest just in um, safe assets. So, and also making sure your money can stand up to longevity risk and inflation risk and all of these things. So I've always studied risk, but it felt like there was a big disconnect. Like I'd studied it, but a lot of people don't get exposure to basic risk science, which in economics is just finance. Finance is the study of risk in financial markets. So um, 
I spent a lot of years working with financial planners who I also noticed were kind of struggling to explain risk to people because they don't really have good tools. People might take these fairly esoteric, you know, risk aversion quizzes, but I don't think they really translate into anything meaningful, particularly when people actually lose money or feel like they're missing out on gains. And then, but I also had a background as a journalist and had an interest in storytelling and finding interesting people and telling their stories. So the idea was I could bring this all together and help people understand risk better through storytelling and stories that resonate with people because they're about people. People like stories about characters. And because in theory, a financial model, which is that our risk models are just math parables. So the idea was, could I find a more traditional parable structure to give the same story? Yeah, and, and you do a very good job of that. You profile Thank a num- you. number of different things. Um, you even profile one of the places risk management comes in is sort of careers. They sort of talk through your career, getting from the PhD and, and sort of some of the stories you told about yourself. Yeah, so, you know, like a lot of people, I, I made a bet on education, which is, is a good bet, and it worked out for me, so I, I don't want to minimize that. But, uh, you know, I went into a Ph.D. program right out of college, and, you know, it's a very economics Ph.D. as a challenging degree. And, you know, I kind of didn't really think through, you know, what I was going to get out of that. And I think this is a problem in finance, too. The most central issue in finance, or sort of the the barometer of which all risk decisions are built, is the risk-free asset. And it serves an important function, not only because it tells you the price of risk, but it also helps you define your goal and what you're looking for. And so I took, like, it was a significant gamble in terms of spending my entire 20s in a degree. Rather with, and I didn't realize that sort of the risk-free asset at the end of that for me was an academic job. And it wasn't until I finished, and I spent the better part of six years solving a single math problem, which really wasn't a fun way to spend your 20s, that, like, I never wanted to be an academic. I went to all these interviews, and I just had this voice inside me saying, get out of here, you don't belong here. So um, as I sort of went rogue and, uh, you know, left uh, my Ph.D. program, I graduated without a job, which is super unusual in economics, and ended up becoming a journalist, which is an insane risk to take, especially if you have a quantitative Ph.D. But uh, it turned out being, as I said, it, it worked out for the best. Um, I learned this storytelling skill. Uh, I learned how to communicate, which is super useful. And in the end, I ended up meeting uh, Robert Merton, who you know is a famous financial professor, and he uh, encouraged me to work with him and to turn my dissertation into a financial product. And he's the one who taught me finance. Interesting. And so, is that this uh, the, the the finance life cycle? Is that talk a little bit about how you're thinking about retirement planning from? you know, where the people are and what, what, how your, your tools might help them? So um, I think about retirement, I think, a little differently than the conventional way, which is, you know, in uh, an industry, it's typical is it's very focused on the accumulation phase because that's honestly where everyone's been since the 80s, um, which is you save and the risk there is defined as losing money in any given year. Um, and the goal is normally a big pile of money when you retire. The day one of retirement, maybe it's a million dollars, maybe it's 500000 it's whatever. But if you're a life cycle economist like I am, that's not the right problem you should be solving. The goal is smooth resources throughout your lifetime and predictable income throughout your retirement. And that is, is it a fundamentally different problem than just saving for a pile of money because, you know, making income last, uh, managing the interest rate risk uh, becomes – 
you know, not a problem you can just say for and then one day switch your strategy. It really takes from day one thinking about how can I make secure income in retirement? How much income do I need in retirement? How much income do I want in retirement? And investing around those goals really would be a very different strategy. For instance, if your goal is simply managing wealth fluctuations, you would be in a T-bill because that makes sure, you know, it's a very predictable return. But if you're actually thinking about long-term income, then your risk-free rate would be a long-dated bond because that actually, the price of a long-dated bond actually moves with the stream of income. Yeah, and it's very interesting. I mean, you were talking about how do you price out, you know, that stream, buying that stream of income. And so instead of saying, I've got a million dollars in my bank account, um, you'd be seeing what it takes to buy the income stream. And that's sort of a framework. You don't see that all that often um, in terms of being able to price that stream of income. Yeah, and I said, I think I, I, I worry a lot about the retirement problem. This is a big reason I wrote the book because I think everyone's framed the problem incorrectly. Because suppose that you're like, all right, I need a million dollars on day one of retirement, and I don't know, I'll deal with how I spend it when I get there. Um, you know, maybe you'd buy an annuity, which would be how, what economists think you should do, but no one else thinks you should do. And But the price of an annuity, you know, varies significantly um, depending on the current rate of interest rates. Or, you know, what if your goal is to have a million dollars on day one, but the stock market crashes the day before? Do you When, when do you time this? See, so you can't just flip your strategy. You really need to be saving for retirement from day one. And, you know, an annuity price can tell you the price of the income. It doesn't mean an annuity is right for you, but it can help you think about in terms of income and saving for investing for income. Um, I, hi, this is Lee Chen. I actually, I just want to follow up. So there's some idea in retirement uh, talking about, you know, kind of laddered um, annuity, which, you know, you got a little bit, you know, hedged against the interest rate risk, which is one of the biggest risks. I just want to understand, like, when you say long-dated bonds versus annuity, like, do you do you believe that, you know, if you were to do, you know, laddered uh, annuity, that that could still be a better option? Do you mean a laddered bond portfolio or a laddered annuity? So in some way, it's like you buy uh, some kind of deferred annuity. I see. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that is one way to do it. I mean, there's been attempts uh, to do that. And certainly with the new legislation, buying deferred annuities will become more popular, although usually that's for people who are in their 60s and are buying longevity insurance in case they live past 85. That is a way to do it. So traditionally, they haven't been a very popular strategy, um, I think, because people are reluctant to lock up their money when they're 65, let alone when they're younger. But that, that is one way to do it. Another way is, as I said, is to invest in what would be a laddered bond portfolio, which is kind of what I was saying when I said that you should have a long-dated bonds, which is duration matching your um, an annuity purchase or, as I said, the deferred annuity. I mean, they're all useful strategies. Yeah. So um, in terms of in this, uh, what's your thoughts on about this longevity risk? Because, you know, even in the uh, annuity or in the ladder bond, you still potentially have, you know, not able to kind of, uh, you know, get the longevity like a risk. Well, well, no, I think actually that is the purpose of annuities is that the insurer takes on longevity risk for you. And that if you, assuming you get a life annuity, I mean, there's different kinds of annuity. If you get a, a annuity that was only for a certain amount of years, then you still have longevity risk. But if you buy a life annuity, it is by definition will make income payments for you as long as you live because you've transferred that risk to an insurer. I mean, you pay for that, but um, it is an option. Yeah. So actually, I probably I should frame my question a little bit different. Is that, you know, insurers, because you have this counterparty risk, right? Like sometimes insurance company 
may um they they may over like their portfolio may have like underestimated longevity risk. So you know they have quoted a good price, but in the end they may not be able to. Isn't that um, a, a better argument for for like a, a laddered bond in that way? Well, a laddered bond can't hedge longevity. Um, is that it is by definition for a fixed number. And that, I mean, counterparty risk is a risk around insurers, although I would say it's a much smaller risk than having to manage your own longevity risk. First of all, it is cheaper for the insurance company to pool everyone's longevity risk together. That way people who die earlier can subsidize people who live longer. Um, and it, I mean, the good thing about, especially if you go with a highly rated insurance company, is that they are fairly well regulated. So the odds that they're going to default on your um, annuity, you know, aren't zero, but they're all, it's also not a high probability. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Alison Traeger, the author of a new book, Economist Walks Into a Brothel, a sort of interesting story across a number of different ways of looking at risk in, in an unconventional way. Um, is there any sort of of the stories, Alison, that you want to bring attention to, things that sort of looking at risk in sort of this unique way that, that you thought was, was very illustrating? Yeah. So, I mean, each chapter explores a different industry and a different theme from financial theory. Um, one of my favorites was uh, when I went to Hawaii, uh, because big wave surfers, it turns out, have an annual risk conference where they all get together and discuss different risk management strategies and really have a very, are having a very interesting debate right now about systemic risk, which um, struck me because I go to a lot of financial economics conferences and pension conferences myself, and it's the same debate we're having there. And it was interesting seeing that because, you know, just like, you know, the debates we're having in macro finance right now, which is when people take on risk and they pose a systemic risk, like it's a risk that poses risks to others and could even bring down the whole system, you know, where is the responsibility? Who bears that cost of that risk? And where is the scope for regulation? And I was surprised that surfers are really having the same discussion because, uh, the big wave surfing world is constantly changing due to technology, the same way financial technology is always changing markets. And, you know, initially it was leashes on surfboards meant you could be a weaker swimmer and, you know, be a surfer. Um, then jet skis meant that if, you know, you could take bigger risks because you're more likely to be rescued if you wipe out. Not only that, you can use a jet ski to push you on a bigger wave, effectively taking leverage. Um through, by flipping around insurance, which is similar to options. But now it's a, uh inflatable vests, which are a vest that just lies right up above your wetsuit, and if you wipe out, you pull a cord, and it brings you to the surface. And right now there are these huge debates going on in the big wave surf community about wh- who should be able to buy this vest. You know, it is a life-saving piece of technology, but they're concerned that people will buy them and take risks they shouldn't, and then perhaps pose risks to others, either crashing into surfers or uh, taking resources that could be used for rescue for other people. And so their big debate is, should anyone just buy it? Should They seem to uh, feel that um, the producers of the vest, either Quicksilver or Patagonia, should restrict who should buy it. Although, you know, as an economist, that seems like a strange way to do it. I asked them if they would be open to regulation, like, like a license for big wave surfing, and no one liked that idea. And But, I mean, also it does come down to personal responsibility. And as I said, we have these same debates in finance of, you know, we assume that people in financial markets need regulation because we can't trust them to hone in their risks if they're, if they're potentially systemic. 
Sounds like a conference that we should try to go yeah, to. Yeah, in Hawaii. Hawaii. Risk, risk management conference. I highly recommend it. Thank you. I'll tell my boss <laughs> that I need the budget. And listen, I, I really enjoy your book. Um, of Thank course, you. being a quant, I'm very paying attention to numbers. So there is a, a, um, on, on the page of our traders, which I really like to get a, a little bit more detail than you mentioned. So you said that in the book that a bond trader at the you know Chicago Board of Trade who had a morning loss is, you know, 15.5% more likely to take greater risk in the afternoon compared to w- with a trader who had a morning gain. And this in some way is kind of um, not necessarily good because it's not a systematic uh, way of uh, looking at the trading. But my question is, you know, um, I want to get your comment on this, but my follow-up would be that um, is this a good strategy in making money or not? No, it's not. I mean, this is when I was getting into various behavioral biases. I mean, whether or not you take a risk should be, you know, assessing the quality of that risk, where the downsides, where the upsides, does this get me closer to my risk goal? It shouldn't be, well, I'm down, so I better double down so I have a bigger chance of making up my losses. In fact, when people do that, they tend to make worse decisions. You also see that with people being more reluctant to sell stocks that are losing money and, in fact, will then sell stocks that are making money, which, again, is, is not a sensible thing to do. So, I mean, d- these are the behavioral biases. I think as an economist would interest me is that it's a bad trading strategy. There's no doubt. And is Does this show up in prices? Does it impact prices? Are prices less efficient because of this behavior? And I think we don't really know. I mean, this is, I think, the big debate that economists are having, classical economists, more behavioral economists, is does this... It matters for individuals, but does it matter for markets? It's interesting. I mean, I, I've loved the poker analogies. Every A lot of us have read Andy Dukes. We've had Andy Duke on the podcast before, uh, and I've, I've sort of studied Helmuth and, and, and that story, and it was really interesting seeing you know the percentage of times he plays and, and sort of talks about all the, the, the emotion there. Uh, and, it's, and it's interesting to say, you know, there's a lot of factor investing that, you know, you see what do these behavioral biases tell you what, what's happening in markets. And you talked about, you know, people should just get up when they're losing in a way. It's mm-hmm. sort of similar to a stock. And then in momentum, riding your winners, is that the momentum effect? But then when does the momentum effect roll over and become a value effect, sort of buying cheap stocks? I'm curious, as you think about how you would manage your own portfolio in terms of factors using all these behavioral biases, do you have a factor tilt to how you think about the market? I do. I mean, I used to work at DFA, so of course I do. Okay. Um, not momentum, though. Is it? I don't think. I don't know if they're doing momentum now, but they weren't when I was there. So my own portfolio is tilted towards small cap and value, um, just because I feel like those are risk factors that give your uh, portfolio a little juice. But um, uh, and I worked not to have any behavioral um, uh, biases. Uh, like I actually, I you know, I you know, I feel comfortable taking risks. So I think my portfolio is actually fairly heavily in, I think, like emerging markets core, hmm. uh, which is the DFA fund that's emerging markets tilted towards small cap. Uh, so I don't think that's doing that market's doing great. Uh, nothing against the fund, but I just think that market's not doing great. So I, it takes some discipline not just to look at the portfolio and be like, I believe that emerging markets have potential for more growth. I believe small cap has, has potential for more growth, both because these are risky factors and just to stick with it. Actually, from your talk, I felt like you were an ideal customer of Wisdom Tree because Wisdom Tree is built on uh, uh, early years on a small cap, you know, not cap weighted and value. And um, we actually have a blog which I think talks about there like 50 different shades of um, 
fifty colors of or how do you say fifty shades of value.、Mm-hmm. So really, like value also can be defined differently.、Um, And in in that way, we probably disagree with DFA a little bit. <laughs> um, I I I think your title of the book is very interesting, and there's no avoidance of let's get into a little bit um not very politically correct uh question. I think one thing in in your book you mentioned that actually legal uh escort is three times more expensive than a legal escort, which really makes me. Wonder like is this price more for female or it's you know generally true for male and female?、Uh, the other question is you know usually when you think about illegal or legal products like drugs, the illegal one is more expensive. Like what have you thought about you know why it, it's you know happened to be in this case? Yeah, I thought a lot about it, and you know、uh, that's actually why it is the first chapter is. Generally, you know, said you have a you have sort of a, a bid ask spread whenever you have an illegal transaction, right? Because as a buyer, you know, you you're taking on risk, and so you feel like you should be compensated for that. Of course, the seller is selling this illegal good, so they want to be compensated for it. And usually, what it comes down to is whether or not illegal or legal good costs more. Usually, comes down to availability. Like with、uh, illegal drugs, tend to cost more because you know. Legal drugs are super hard to get,、um, so you know they ca- so、uh, drug dealers can charge a premium for availability, as opposed to say illegal cigarettes tend to be way cheaper than the alternative, because、um, you know you're not going to buy a legal cigarette unless you get some sort of discount. So I was surprised that sex work turned out to be so much more expensive if you bought the legal alternative. Right, because like illegal sex work is actually fairly easy to buy, in that it's in every city and every town. Women advertise online; it's very easy to buy. So the idea that you'd have to go to Nevada and pay a premium was shocking to me. And it turns out that it's a risk premium, and that you know it's risky to buy sex, especially lately because there's been a lot of government crackdowns in the sex industry.、Um, you know, it said you know a customer doesn't want to find himself in a Robert Kraft situation. And if he goes to a legal brothel, he'll pay a 300% markup, but he knows that you know there'll effectively be no cost to this. He will, no one will ever know. Even he can charge it on a credit card, and it will appear some innocuous charge. So he knows he can get away with it. Although the women also have to pay for safety, because you know they also want to you know sell their services, and they don't want to risk arrests or violence. You know, violence is a very serious concern for sex workers. They're meeting strange men on the internet and going to private places with them, so、um, they're also paying a fairly large amount. They pay a 50 percent、uh, cut to the brothel just for the privilege of working legally, and not to mention because they are legal workers, they also pay taxes. Illegal workers don't, so they actually are. Anyway, they, they they're booking a lot of money. They actually don't get to take home that much money. And this is where the brothel comes in. Is they are they, this, sort of that spread is where they make their money. And I, it was interesting because I normally think of pimps as people who put people in very risky situations and then reap the benefits of it. So like crime usually has a sort of screwy risk market, and because it's so untransparent, you know, a good risk market, people who take more risk get more reward. That isn't usually the case with pimps. Allison, unfortunately, we have to just be our final tease of the show.、Uh, we have to find your book. A cop walks into a brothel. We ran out of time. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. 
Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.